I'm Julia Sherbakov, and this is Impact Journey. Conversations with hidden heroes making big societal change. So many people in the environmental movement are trying to change the system, but using the same behaviors that were responsible for the system being created in the first place. People striving to be seen to be the best. People burning out because they're so busy. And so what I've learned is actually where change now needs to happen most desperately is in our minds. Today, I am happy to welcome Joe Confino. Joe is someone I have been excited and intimidated to talk to. Um, because I have read him and had him in my ear. Um, Joe's been a journalist for decades, many of those at The Guardian. There he started The Guardian's sustainable business section over a decade ago. And that is the first place where I read a major publication covering business in that way. He's also led The Guardian's Living Our Values program. Um, He was an editor at HuffPost. He's a partner at Leaders Quest, a climate facilitator, an executive coach. And all of those are reasons I would have already wanted to talk to Joe. But Joe made a big change in his life recently. He left the big city life in New York and London and moved to a monastic community in rural France called Plum Village. And he now hosts the Plum Village podcast called The Way Out Is In, grounded in the teachings of Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. And that's how I have him in my ear every week these days. And that's why it was really meaningful to speak to him right now. You may have noticed this podcast is leaning more and more into this intersection of inner change and outer change. And Joe was the perfect person to talk to about that and why it's so hard. And in particular, why we keep the world suffering at a distance because we don't know how to deal with our own. Suffering, meditation, mindfulness, all my favorite things. Please enjoy this conversation with Joe Contino. As a start, actually, I'd love to start at the beginning. What's been the driving force behind some of the work that you've done as a journalist, now as a podcaster, you're also a coach, a photographer, many things. But I'm curious, where does that all originate from? The first memory that comes to my mind when you asked that question was standing outside at night when I was probably 10 years old and looking up at the stars just having the sense of what is all this about? Because I I was sort of having trouble making sense of my place on earth, trying to find some reference points to my life on earth. And then also realizing that the universe was so large, I couldn't make sense of my own life and I couldn't make sense of everything else. It was Mm. a sense of sort of awe and also a sense of, of just a big question mark, really. And then, you know, when I was at university and I had to make a choice of sort of what to do post-university because my father was basically starting to look more sternly at me when I said I didn't (laughs) know. And I had a friend who had applied for a postgraduate course in journalism and I just saw the pamphlet about it on his desk and I just felt connected to it because it was what makes a good journalist and it's, it's curiosity 
and it's being able to be inquisitive and ask questions and also underneath it all the wish to make sense of the world and also to help inform and educate and sometimes entertain people in a way that helps them to be more like citizens rather than just observers. And I suppose it's like a tuning fork and it just resonated with those aspects of me. And and in a sense, when I look at my life, those still sort of are core to how I see the world and my place in it and what contribution I can make. That's so interesting. And I've seen your contribution in so many places. I think I first discovered you reading Guardian Sustainable Business. That was the first Mm. ever dedicated section I had seen on sustainable business and coming from the very traditional business world. But that was one of the first places where I really read that flip side of business where it wasn't just so-and-so made this much money. I was going to relate to that because Before I set up Guardian Sustainable Business, I started off as a finance journalist and I had no idea about finance because because I couldn't ground it in my own consciousness. I started off at the Daily Telegraph and my first job was writing the Questa investment column and telling people which shares to buy and which to sell and realizing actually I had no sense of what to say. You know, I had two hours to write about how Unilever was doing and then tell people whether to buy or sell. And then I sort of became Wall Street correspondent in New York. So I went for a tour of the New York Stock Exchange with the then deputy chairman. And I was asking all these questions. And at the end, he turned to me and said, you really don't have a clue, do you? <laughs> and at the time, it was very humiliating because, because it was actually true. But I was quite happy, proud of the fact that I didn't understand it. The reason I didn't really understand it was because it had no connection to people and society and the impacts and outcomes of decisions made by a small elite without any accountability or responsibility to the impacts of their actions. So when I had the chance to set up Guardian Sustainable Business, that was because I wanted to say it doesn't have to be this way. It's not about just share prices, mergers and acquisitions, currency movements, about this monetary policy or that fiscal policy. It's actually about how does business and finance connect to ordinary people's lives all over the world and how are those decisions made and what impacts can they have and how we can do it differently. And and so that section was, as you say, it was the first major news organization globally that took that issue seriously. Because at that time when we launched, sustainability was just emerging as a sort of practice. Our wish was to build it into a respected profession, help it journey from the edge into the central business. So we did awards and we did roundtables and we did conferences. And all of that was to say, let's put this on the map. Let's give it respect. Let's give the people who are operating often in very difficult situations with very little power, but a lot of commitment to give them a bit of a boost and to showcase that where companies were starting to make a difference, that they were being successful at doing it. And I'm so curious to how well that's worked because I very much feel the need for that. I was born and raised in the Soviet Union. And so I come to capitalism 
almost like with this outsider's curiosity of like, what is this thing? And all of you are just celebrating money and who's making the most money. That's also a bit what I see that you were doing at Guardian Sustainable Business, then also at HuffPost. But I'm curious, how well do you think that has worked and and what have you learned about power and change? Well, at the time, it was quite a radical thing to do. And also, even within The Guardian, which we know is, you know, one of the more enlightened news organizations, I did not have the capacity to set up Guardian Sustainable Business in the business section. It was done almost at the edge of The Guardian, even though oh, it, was really? a section of, it was a section of The Guardian, but I ran it independently of the main newsroom. And that's because it, we wouldn't have had the opportunity to develop that within the center of the newsroom. One of the things I'm particularly interested in, you talked about being the outsider, but I think everything new grows at the edge. If it has enough energy, it then moves into the center because you can't establish it in the center because the, the center of the ecosystem is so developed and established that nothing new can really form and, and get a foundation. So new life forms often are created at the very edge of ecosystems. And then as they develop, if they have enough strength, move into the center. So I think life is constantly a, this transformation of things coming from the edge into the center and then becoming established and wanting to maintain power. And then you need something else from the edge to come in and, and disrupt that. I think we go through cycles of transformation, disruption, establishment, and then the things that were established are pushed out of the way. And we right. see that everywhere. But I think at the moment, you know, what we need, given the sort of polycrisis we face, is for everyone to start looking for what is at the edge and what they can work with. And, and the, the place I've chosen to focus on is the consciousness as the edge. Because what I've seen and what I've learned for myself and learned very much from the Plum Village tradition of Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh, is that we're always trying to solve things out in the world. And that will only ever take us so far unless we actually change. So you see even so many people in the environmental movement who are trying to change the system, but using the same behaviors that were responsible for the system being created in the first place. So if you look at within the environmental movement, you have people striving to be seen to be the best. You have a lot of difficulties of collaboration. People saying it's my idea. Mm -hmm. People burning out because they're so busy, working all God's hours, wanting to be recognized, et cetera, et cetera. And so they're trying to use that technique to create a new paradigm, which is not based on competition and not based on striving in the same way and not based on egoic needs. And so what I've learned is actually where change now needs to happen most desperately is in our minds. That's such a good connection to really the main thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is I do feel like there is something happening right now where lately people will reach out to me with two questions. They're like, number one, tell me about how do I change my career to align with my values and sustainability and all of that. And number two, and this is because I'm also very open and public about my meditation practice, people will pull me aside like silently after a meeting will say, can you tell me about meditation retreat that you just went on? 
And I don't think that the fact that they're happening around the same time are a coincidence, right? <laughs> because I think they both speak to what you just said, which is this link between inner change and outer change, inner work and outer work, that there's this desire to connect the two. Yeah. And there is a radical change going on, actually. I mean, it might be too slow for our liking, but when I was at Guardian Running Guardian Sustainable Business, I, I wrote an article about the role of love in business. Mm. And I thought, is this going to be a career destroyer? Because actually, the last thing you should be writing in any major newspaper is about love and business. At the end of it, I thought, sod it. Uh, and I wrote it and it got published. And, and the first comment that came in on the article said something like, your finger must have hovered over the send button for a long, long time. <laughs> because at that time, you know, it was you could not put those two words, business and love together. It just couldn't be done. Whereas now people are actually much more prepared to speak out much more openly about this. I do some work with Christiana Figueres, who is the main architect of the Paris Climate Agreement. And, and she is a student of Thich Nhat Hanh as well. And she is very open about the importance of a spiritual grounding and foundation. She's very open about the fact that the Paris Climate Agreement was made possible only because she was able to bring those spiritual values into those talks and to recognize what it is to deeply listen, what it is to be compassionate. And those sort of core, in a sense, spiritual values were absolutely central to that agreement. And she says, without them, we wouldn't have done it because everyone mm -hmm. trying to get 196 countries to agree something under the normal ways of operating wouldn't have happened. And I get lots of people in all walks of life from sort of CEOs to heads of NGOs openly recognizing the power of spiritual values in sustaining change. You know, just last year, we had 30 climate leaders come to some village for a climate leaders retreat, we've got a group of some of the world's biggest business leaders coming to Plum Village in June. There's a retreat of 100 or so climate leaders that Plum Village is organizing in Canada in May. There'll be another one in October. And people are reaching out and saying, I want to come. I hear this is coming. Can I come? And these are not people in sort of alternative industries. These are people leading some of the world's largest businesses. They're people who are sort of running financial institutions. You know, there is a recognition that we've tried everything and it's got us so far. And the last frontier we need to breach is the one of the separation of the intellect, physical world with spirituality and consciousness. I'm so glad that you brought up the climate movement and the connection to spirituality there, because there's so many ways that those connect, but there's also so many ways that they're still separate. And I was really moved by your work on this it was years ago now, but a brilliant article about the importance of grieving in mm -hmm. addressing the climate crisis. It's a sense that I often get in my work, which is we can't fully tackle the problems we want to tackle until we face them head on. And I don't just mean we look at the statistics, but actually like feeling the feelings. And in feeling the feelings, there is a lot of grief and there's a lot of fear and mm -hmm. What's really hard is I've just in my day job, I've really seen and felt what happens when that fear is not, when we don't allow ourselves to feel it. And I've seen myself do it too. It's like jumping to solutions, let's move faster. And 
there's a lot of like blaming others and scarcity mindset of who's going to get credit for this one thing. Like it's, it becomes so like, I actually notice myself right now, just even in talking about it, getting activated in a way that I don't want to be right. Like, that's not how I want to show up mm. to this challenge. But I just, I literally just talked myself into that mindset, just asking you this question. So I'm so curious, so fascinated with your work with civilizational collapse as well. Cause that's for me, it's like, how do you take grieving and really sit with it? And then in order to create solutions, what does that look like when we do that well? I was having this discussion earlier when I was coaching someone that it's so hard to grieve for something that you don't feel deeply personally in that moment connected to. So much of what we're looking at these sort of meta crises, environmental collapse, biodiversity collapse, civilizational collapse, social inequality leading to collapse. And it's vaguely possible to start thinking of that in, on an intellectual level, but very, very difficult to truly feel that at an emotional level because it just feels so far removed. You know, someone says a thousand people dying. And you think, oh, God, that's terrible. And the difficulty is that so much is around proximity and how close we get to things. So last summer, I helped co-convene this four-day convening on, on civilizational collapse. Which, and it was the first time about 120 people coming together from all over the world from different disciplines to, to talk about that. And, you know, you're sitting for four days talking about the end of days of course you feel stuff, but, you know, I wasn't lying on the floor, sort of doubled up in pain, bawling my eyes out. And then I came home and it was in the middle of the last summer's heat wave, which mm. in France, it was like 40, 43, 44 degrees around where I live. And I've never seen that before. We have a pond out in our front garden and, and it's a beautiful pond. It has lots of life, dragonflies and it has newts and it has frogs and it has toads and it has lots of animals come to drink water from there. And I got home after this convening and the pond had virtually dried up. And I was more upset and, and more devastated than anything I'd heard in the convening about civilizational collapse, even though civilizational and ecological collapse will lead to probably most ponds drying up and billions of people dying, the destruction of millions of species, terrible, terrible suffering on it. But that didn't move me in the way the pond did. So I just think it's very hard to ask people to create change when it feels distant. Where do we see people care about things? And you think, well, one is about sort of international aid charities. But they put these appeals and, and people see, you know, kids starving or droughts creating sort of difficulties for survival in parts of sub-Saharan Africa. And then people donate their sort of 10 or 20 pounds or whatever they donate. And you think that's people really connecting to that issue and people really care. And of course, there's an element of that. But I remember Emma Thompson, the actress, I was at an event where she was speaking and she was the ambassador of, I think it was ActionAid. And she was talking about that most people give money to push the problem away from them. Mm. Because they say, I've given my 10 pounds, I've made my contribution, but can yeah. you keep it away from me now? So sometimes, even when it looks as though we're connected to something, there's a question of, are we really connected to it? Or actually, are we just saying, I've done my bit? Well, one of the sort of antidotes to this, of course, is that where it is very, very personal and where we can 
start to feel things is when it comes to our own suffering. And I don't mean the suffering of climate change. I mean our own deep psychological and wounds that we carry mm, through our life. The Buddhist that, term of suffering, yeah. That sense that we all suffer. There's no one I know who doesn't go through many levels of suffering in their life. And that actually the best way to connect to the suffering of the world is to connect to one's own suffering, because then we connect to the suffering of the world. And I think you talk about, you know, inner change and outer change. It was interesting because I just, a few days ago, I'd done an interview with Thich Nhat Hanh, my last interview with him, which was 10 years ago. And it was a very, very bad recording. And I just got it sort of cleaned up. And just the other night, I was just able to listen to it for the first time in, in a decade. And asking him about climate, civilizational collapse, all this. And what he says in it is very clear. He says, how can you expect people to care about the suffering of the world where they don't even know how to deal with their own suffering? Exactly. And that's the disconnect. If we're hiding and unable to deal with our own personal suffering, and we have many ways of avoiding it, as we know, through diversionary tactics and consumptional habits, that if we don't start to face our own problems, well, of course, why would we choose to care about touch the suffering of the world? Because the touching of the suffering of the world, if you deeply touch it, it could not be anything other than resonating to the suffering in yourself. You cannot separate one's own suffering from the world, and you cannot separate the suffering of the world from oneself. So, of course, we most people want to avoid it, because they're doing their best already to deny their own suffering. Oh, so what's the answer, Joe? It's always, that point, it's always that point in therapy, isn't it? I hear you. I really understand that. But what do I do about it? They're, they're, <laughs> because we haven't got a muscle developed around it. We're very focused on dealing with the stuff outside ourselves. We've been educated in it. We've built our lifetime on coping and how to be successful in that. And the answer is very, very simple. It's to actually refocus on the things that matter most in life which is what it is to connect to the people we love. What is it to slow down and to listen to the bird song? What is it to deeply listen to a friend without the need to try and solve their problems? Or how does that relate to me? And then jumping in with, yeah, that's really interesting because when I did this, it's about what it is to show people compassion and to recognize that, the suffering of the world, to recognize that if I'm happy and you're not happy, then I can't be truly happy. That even whatever our circumstances, there are always choices of how do we choose to view that situation, however painful. And of course, it's easy to say and difficult to do. But I remember Viktor Frankl, who was in the concentration camps and then wrote a book afterwards. And he said something to the effect of even when people were being led into the gas chambers, they had a choice. Do they love or do they hate? So actually, when we look at life, we see that every day we're making hundreds, if not thousands of choices. Is that when we speak to someone, how are we speaking to them? Are we speaking angrily? Are we speaking in a way that tries to make us feel better by making them smaller? Do we feel that we're right only if we prove someone else wrong? How are we actually behaving in the world? through mindfulness, which is observing in the present moment, being aware, and being aware of our actions, being aware of our behaviors, being aware of our thoughts, 
being aware of the wise person within us. I'm so glad you bring up Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning. Something I took away from that book was between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is our freedom. And creating that space for ourselves, even if it's a split second. I'm curious for you now, the work that you've done through journalism now at Plum Village, both looking backwards and looking forwards, what are you most proud of? that you have done, but also what's next, like what's the growing edge for you now? Oh, that's a, that's a very good question. So I think what I'm most proud of, well, there's two things. I think one of them is the podcast, The Way Out Is In. It's funny because when I moved from the Huff Post in New York and came to Plum Village, there was a little, a small part of me that sort of mourned not no longer being a journalist because I've been a journalist for more than 40 years. I started doing the podcast The Way Out Is In with the abbot of Plum Village Monastery called Fap Who. And the head of learning from TED came to Plum Village. And I was sort of saying, oh, you know, I feel a bit sad that I'm no longer a journalist. He said, what do you mean you're no longer a journalist? This is journalism. You are creating content you're in conversations with people, you're informing, educating and entertaining your audience. This is journalism. And, and I was so grateful to him for that because actually it, it was true. While I've done a lot of things sort of in a sense at scale, you know, I helped set up the environment side of the Guardian, the global development side of Guardian Sustainable Business. I ran the Living Our Values program at the Guardian, which I set up to sort of make sure that the values of the Guardian were being embodied by us. All those felt really important and still are in their own ways. But this is personal. I feel on the podcast, there are no boundaries, no barriers to the conversation. I don't have to think, oh, well, how do I talk about this? Is it possible to bring this into the conversation? Or how will people respond to this or that? It's just free. It's freedom to express without fear or favor, just and just to be open and vulnerable because I'm in a setting which is a conscious community which is all about freedom and openness and vulnerability and, and sharing from the heart. And the other thing is the coaching work I do. For the same reason, it's an extraordinary and quite rare privilege in life to be able to accompany someone on a journey of adventure and transformation take any one person and you go deep we are extraordinary beings extraordinary complex contradictory beings and to see people who through this work are able mm. to recognize themselves more deeply to open doors to rooms they didn't know existed to be able to touch and go through places of pain that they've been avoiding. I have the privilege of seeing people do that, mm. of people who, who feel they're one thing, then recognize that actually where their greatest pain is, is also where their greatest gift lies. And that we'll go through life with all our wounds. We don't get rid of things, but we are able to integrate them and we're able to use the pain and suffering to generate joy and to see how it improves their relationships, improves their friendships, how it improves their sense of self, how it improves their relationship to the world and their work. I'm in constant awe because I think it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Yeah, what a privilege. Well, Joe, thank you so much. Thank you and lots of love. 
A big thanks to Joe Confino. You can follow him in the links in the show notes and let me know what you think. Impact Journey Podcast at gmail.com. This is Impact Journey. See you next time.